0: We can't talk about food independent of health because food and health go together like a and club. And um, if you look at the amount that we spend in this country for food plus health, for the last 60 years hasn't really changed much. But what has changed is the ratio of what you're spending for food and health. It used to be we spent um, seven, eight, 9% for um, health and about 18, 19% for food. Now that's just reversed. So the, the the health is sky high because so many people are sick. For one thing, of course, in health things cost more. But now, so many, 60 percent of this country has at least one chronic disease. 40 um, percent have two or more. You know, um, no country can sustain that, and it's getting worse and worse year by year. And it doesn't matter what kind of healthcare program you have. There's a lot of debate about that nowadays. It doesn't matter what kind of healthcare you have if a significant percent of the people are ill, you're gonna break the country, you're gonna break the system, eventually it will come down because no society can, can pay for that much sickness.
1: Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Bob Quinn, an organic dryland grain farmer from Montana who's been farming without chemicals since the 1980s. Bob had so much to share about food policy, growing practices, and health of communities. We split his interview into, two and we'll bring you the second half next week.
2: Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm talking today with my friend Bob Quinn. Bob, welcome. Welcome to my farm. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's a gorgeous day, and <laughs> first time I've been here,
0: so it's been a real treat.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm. I'm very pleased to show you the thing. I've been reading your book, as I said, and uh, yeah, it's a spectacular book. So uh, it talks about so many important issues that that uh, we're all dealing with in this country. And one of the things that I have come to see in my journey is that food is everybody's issue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We all eat, we all eat (laughs) and it, it matters what we eat. Yes. And it matters how it was grown. So how did you come to that? (laughs) Well, I didn't start there. That's for sure. Um,
0: In fact, I I was raised in a very chemical world um, in Northern Montana. Um, My dad was an early adopter of herbicides. And I remember him experimenting with fertilizers in the the 50s and trying to demonstrate that that, or show that that was having an effect. Um, By that time, our farm, which my grandfather started in 1920 had been, had grown, we only can grow a crop every other year. So from 20 to 50, that's, um, Uh, 30 years, but only 15 crops. And the soil was starting to become depleted. Uh, And the fertilizers came out and the um, herbicides came out as almost like wonder drugs to these folks at this time. And they just adopted them just um, instantly. And no one questioned it. No one questioned any harm or long-term problem or anything because all they saw was the short-term gain, which was right before before their eyes and easy to demonstrate. So that's how I was raised. And that's why I was taught in school. I went to Montana State University, which is our egg our school in Montana. I studied botany and plant pathology. That's why I was taught there. I went to UC Davis, uh, worked on um, plant biochemistry. So I was a little bit removed from agriculture, but still loved it. So I would often take um, um, classes or I would just audit and do field trips. Cause I, the agriculture in California is just stupendous. and they have so much diversity and variety that we can't uh, even think about in montana but that's there was a message there and everywhere that we went and we went to a peach orchard one time where uh, the peaches were being picked and i love ripe peaches and um, we used to get our peaches when i was a kid in in um, wooden boxes they were double wrapped Uh, if you set them on the shelf in two or three days they were luscious and ready to eat they're fully ripe and these peaches on the trees looked like they were ripe. They had the color of a ripe peach. But when you bit into them, they were as green as grass. And there's no flavor, there's no taste. And, and they had developed a, a petroleum product that you could spray on the tree. And, and these peaches would turn color and appear ripe, but they weren't ripe. And that was the very first time that I ever questioned um, anything we were doing with, um, what I call industrial agriculture or chemical agriculture or um, other modern stuff. Um, we were changing our food for the convenience of, of the merchandisers, the people who were selling it. They were selling it from California across the country. They wanted to ship it in big um, boxes of containers that wasn't gonna be individually wrapped anymore or shipped in little boxes, it was shipped in big crates. And if they picked it green, it wouldn't bruise. And so they looked at this as a, as a wonderful thing um, but I thought it was um, heresy. <laughs> they were they were hoodwinking the the eating public, which I w- was a part of, into buying something that looked beautiful but tasted terrible and and would never ripen properly. That was the very first time, Dave, and that was in the mid '80s um, or mid '70s, early '70s, where I really first started questioning um, what the direction we're going and and just kind of one thing led to another when I moved back home. Um, uh, I was still not convinced that organic was anything to be taken seriously. Um, I started selling my wheat off, we had a wheat and cattle ranch and I started selling my wheat directly to whole grain bakers in California. And the um, second year of our business, um, my customer asked me for organic grain. And I said, well, of course I'll, I'll have it to you in 10 days. Don't worry about a thing. And then I hung up the phone. and I thought, man, I don't even know any organic farmers. And I said, I don't even believe in this organic stuff. <laughs> but I didn't let my prejudice um, stand in the way of keeping my customer happy and trying to f- help him find what he wanted. Yeah, And so that's what I wanted to do. And that put me in contact with really my first organic friends in Montana who are growing organic weeds. There's only a, a, a two or three or four. And um, I was so impressed with what they were doing and, and how they talked about their farm. It was so different than what I had been seeing talked about at grain growers or Farm Bureau meetings when I normally went to, that I just, um, I'm a scientist at heart, and I just had to try it for myself. They talked about how the tilt in their soil changed so you could feel the difference walking over their fields. They talked about growing their own fertilizer so they had the no more fertilizer bills. They talked about um, using rotations to break up disease cycles and insect cycles so they didn't have to spray herbicides and, and, and insecticides. I thought this was amazing. Uh, and almost unbelievable, you know, from my background and my training, but they said it was working and they were excited about it. And I thought if that is really true, I want to see what it will do on my farm. And so in 86, we had our first experiment and that was really kind of the tipping point to me. I had two years of experiments that both worked fabulously well compared to the chemical um, system we were working with. And I just went cold turkey at, at that point and in 88. That was the last chemicals we used on our farm.
2: Okay. So I have so many questions already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, first of all, when, when your father and mother started using chemicals, was it your grandparents or your parents who were, I think your parents were the first ones. Yes, really, my
0: grandfather had retired by then. Yeah,
2: so was your parents. Yeah. And, and same as the farm I grew up on, my parents also, same, same era, the 50s. Yeah. Um, and you say it was like a wonder drug. Yeah. So immediately they saw their yields go up. Well, they saw the weeds go down. They saw the weeds so they, go down. So they
0: had uh, eliminated that. The weeds were um, without rotations. You can imagine the weeds just got worse and worse almost every year, depending on how the year went for the
2: crop. So they weren't rotating.
0: No, it was winter wheat, spring wheat, and barley. And every other year it's summer fallow, which yeah. means you just cultivated the ground and you didn't grow anything on it and uh, save water for the next year. Cause we we're only, <clears throat> we we're a semi-arid that's next to a desert. Right. And we get about 12 inches of rain, but it comes at the right time. But there's really not enough to grow crops every year where we are in the prairie of the Northern Great Plains. And so we would, <clears throat> that, was the, that was the rotation. Summer, fall, winter wheat, barley, sometimes spring wheat, sometimes a little oats for the cows, um, but it was probably 80% winter wheat. So it was very little rotation of
2: crops. And so the, the immediate wonder effect was the weeds.
0: Yeah, the weeds were gone. So I'm, dad used to tell me when he would, one of his job was to ride on the header of the combine. So the front of the combine, which actually cuts the grain and then the big uh, the reels bring the grain into the, the feeder house and then it goes to the combine. He had to stand there with a broom handle and shove the weeds in the, the header, um, the feeder house, so they wouldn't get um, plugged up in the yeah. combine. That was very dangerous. Even today, that would be dangerous. That would be, that would be not allowed if, yeah. if anyone looked at it. It's a very dangerous thing, but it was, it was by necessity that they were forced to, to deal with these weeds and they'd had no uh, way to really, without rotations and whatnot, no one was doing that. Um, the chemicals came and it was an instant, instant gratification sort of to that problem. Yeah. And when they first hit them, um, the weeds were completely susceptible and they just all died instantly. It was a great success. Yeah, It took many, many years and decades, Dave, before weed resistance to herbicides started to develop um, because of overuse. Like Roundup now is being sprayed four or five times a year. We would only spray 2,4-D is what we were spraying at that time one, once every two years on, on any particular field. Uh-huh. But now with Chem Fallow and Roundup, it's being sprayed... Um, probably four or five times during the fallow year and at least twice during the growing year before it's seeded and after it's harvested.
2: So, so explain to people uh, what that means, chem fallow and dry fallow, people, you know.
0: Well, uh, sure, but because you guys, I can see it rains here because you, you yeah, know
2: the color green. That's right. We
0: don't have the color green in the summer, except for early parts of June. Yeah. And after that, <clears throat> we have to conserve water for our next crop. And so what was done originally is um, people would disc or they would plow even the fields. And so they're left completely black. And then the Dust Bowl, the 30s came where it quit raining and the winds blew and and there was soil erosion just uh, everywhere. And tons and tons of soil were lost. And so then um, soil conservation service came into being because of this. Um, In our area, that meant strip cropping. So we would have strips that were, oh, 50, 50 yards wide or so uh, of grain uh, going across the field in one direction, north to south. And then and then every other strip was fallow and every other strip was grain. So you could break up the um, erosions, um, the wind, so it wouldn't erode those big chunks of soil. And so we would um, protect our soil in that way. And we stopped plowing. We used what we called the duck foot. It was just a, a shovel about 18, 14 inches wide, it would undercut the weeds and leave most of the stubble on the ground for most of the year. The more you worked it, the more so we'd work in. But mainly there was always something on top of the soil that hold the soil from blowing away. Um, In the early nineties, I guess, Monsanto came out with a great idea of spraying the um, stubble with Roundup so that it would kill everything and you wouldn't have to disturb it at all. It was called no-till. And, um, and their claim was it would also conserve moisture because every time you work the ground, you lose some moisture. Um, it wasn't a complete trade off because cracks would form and, and, and water would be sucked from way down deep up these cracks and also do some evaporating even if you didn't till the soil. So it wasn't a complete savings on moisture, but it was easy for the farmers to do. They could um, spray hundreds of acres a day, hundreds, instead of maybe cultivating 70 or 80 acres a day uh, with their big equipment. Now we have bigger equipment now, but even the sprayers are so much bigger and go so much faster that um, even the high cost of it was justified with the um, time you saved and the, um, and the ease of which it was done. Yeah. So they just took, they, they kind of took that in the second wave of chemical agriculture. But <clears throat> because of there is so much um, chemical being applied on the same plants same type of plants year after year and even multiple times during the year because you had to spring more than once in a fallow year because weeds would grow back. Once you killed everything, then it rained again, then a new flush of weeds would come so you have to spray it again. And uh, that put so much selective pressure on the weeds that just through natural mutations, you would find weeds that eventually became resistant to that. And now we have Roundup um, resistant weeds and so now they're bringing in even more harsh chemicals to control those. So that's and, and many people are starting to see that now it's just not us organic guys that have been warning about this, you know, for years, but now even some of my most die-hard chemical neighbors <clears throat> are starting to see that this is a, a merry-go-round that has no end. Yeah. And it's just a race to the bottom, and many of them are going broke trying to pay for all this stuff and still maintain their farm and they can't when the prices go down for for uh, crops they can't pay their bills and they go out of business.
2: Yeah. Elliot calls it the drug effect. He said, you know, the first time that they gave people nitrogen and they were like, oh my God, Yeah, you know, it's like the crops are growing like crazy. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Except it, 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 it was like a drug and you just start having to use more and more and yeah. the organic matter in the soil got lower and lower. Yeah. And you know, the whole thing started to spiral down, yes. even though it felt so good in the very beginning.
0: Well, and two, um, David, the thing you have to think about is the way it was um, preached to us and taught to us in school, we focused on feeding the plant. So we, we studied the plant very carefully to see what it would need. And then um, imagined or thought or supposed that we could give the plant everything it needed because we talked in terms of NPK, you know, the, main, the macronutrients, that's all we looked at. And so that's what we put on in fertilizer. And so the soil was actually a, a holding pot for the plant. And the life of the soil was never appreciated, was never discussed. Um, We knew about mycorrhizae and um, it stuck to the roots, but no one paid any attention to that because what was important is what you just mentioned, the nitrogen. The nitrogen is, and we know that is essential, but to think that we can short circuit the normal uh, nitrogen cycle which includes all the microbiology of the soil and just add it directly to the plant it's it's like mainlining yeah it's 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 instead of getting all of our food by eating it just imagine we just shoot up everything that's exactly what was going on um and uh that's not sustainable <laughs> uh it's taken many years for that the long-term effect to start to be um measurable or observed or, or appreciated but now it's starting to be in many many circles
2: yeah now you said <clears throat> back when you first went back to big sandy and and you had a customer who said well can we get organic wheat and at that point for you organic was what was it what did that <laughs> what was your emotional reaction honestly as, well, as a rancher from montana you know as a as a you know, big sky guy. <laughs> what did what did organic symbolize to you?
0: Well, I had first heard the term when I was in California going to school at Davis. Yeah, and a friend of mine that told me about, and this is sort of the mid '70s, so this is pretty early now. But there was a small group in California that were starting. Mother Earth News was out by then. Um, there's a small group that were starting to practice what they called organic agriculture, and a good friend of mine told me about this. But Dave, he was a, he was a law student. And I thought what does this lost know about agriculture? <laughs> I'm the farm kid, you know. I'm the guy that grew up on a, on a on a wheat and cattle ranch. I know how plants grow. I know what it takes to grow wheat and the things that we were familiar with. And I thought I thought I really thought this organic stuff was a bunch of hooey, you know. I really thought, well, that might be nice here in California if you're going to grow, you know, what whatever you're going to spinach or something or kale <laughs> or whatever. But uh, this little... I didn't see how this would uh, apply even to what we're doing in Montana yeah. um, on, a, on a big scale, on a, on a farm scale. And so I was a little surprised that here, my customer who was a fairly good sized baker in um, Southern California, it's called Food for Life. Um, they were just getting into organic. They were really focusing on whole grain. They were doing sprouted wheat breads, which are also very nutritious. This is also where I had appreciation for nutrition. And, and what we, what the f- real truth of food is. And, um, and they had just decided that they wanted to move toward organic. And so he just asked me that right out of the blue, Dave. It was a complete surprise to me. And I thought to myself, I didn't say anything to him other than what I told you. Um, I said, sure, don't worry about things. But <laughs> well, I thought to myself, my gosh. And I said, um, you know, I don't, you know, I, as I mentioned, I didn't even believe in it. I, I, yeah. um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, really didn't. I didn't think that, I heard some, there was one or two farmers in, in, in Montana that were doing it, um, not on a very big scale, but they were um, seeing if they could make it work and I didn't know anything about it. Um, so I was I was skeptical at best and, and uh, not believing at worst, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what drew you to it at first was the economic opportunity that right. people wanted this. Yeah.
0: So a very important customer of ours wanted something we didn't have to give them. Yeah. And so rather than use the industrial model that yeah. we usually see in America and we say, well, you don't want that, you know, we'll take another five cents off of what we got, you know, and, and make you happy. Um, we said, sure, don't worry about that. We'll go find what you want. And that's, but that's my, that's kind of my way of doing business anyway. And it wasn't, organic at the time or anything. It was just how I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to be a service to my customers, the main thing. Everybody could sell them wheat, but um, not too many people took the time and trouble to find the right wheat for their particular needs, or if they had a problem to help them solve their problem. I was very, very interested in helping um, bakers um, solve tr- problems. General Mills wasn't into that business. I mean, they were, they were the big dogs in town. We were just you know, teeny tiny little specks on a wall compared to them. But yeah, we could offer some things that they didn't offer. And that's how I tried to build my business.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what did you discover as you looked I discovered,
0: around? I discovered a whole new world yeah. and, um, and, and a world that had great promise. That's what uh, uh, that was the most exciting thing. So we're gonna try when I, I, I when I told you I decided I wanted to experiment on my own farm so we decided to try 20 acres and for our farm that was less than one percent my my father and I were still farming together then he was quite um, uh, dubious um, he said he said he told me straight I said this is much too risky we don't know anything about what we're doing and I said and I thought to myself, well, dad, you've done lots of things. You didn't know what you're doing. It turned out pretty good, most of them. And, and I had kind of the same mold. I didn't let um, my lack of um, experience uh, hinder me from trying new things. And, uh, and I said, you know, it's only 1%. Let's just see what it does. He said, okay. He said, but you know, I, I, he said, what about the market? You know, where do we sell this stuff? And then we went to our very first food show in California that same year, uh, Natural Food Expo in Anaheim, it was in 86. And my mother and father both went down and helped me and my cousin, who was my um, uh, business partner and living in Southern California with this wheat business that we put together, uh, built our own booth. Um, Everything was homemade. We had no idea what we were doing. We just showed up. And uh, thousands of people walked by in three days. And hundreds of them would say to us, oh, we're so glad you're doing this. Thank you very much for doing this and, and, and having organic at this point. Cause we, at this point now we'd had organic several years and almost half our business was organic by this point yeah. in 88. And uh, we were introducing stone ground, whole wheat flour, um, <clears throat> all high protein from Montana. And, um, and my father, after that, he came home and he said, wow, he says, there is a market of this, this lowers the risk. Yeah. So now he's less, he's less resistant He's not sold, but he's less resistant. Yeah. And the first, um, um, the first experiment was growing uh, 20 acres on um, alfalfa plow down. So this great field had been in alfalfa for four or five years. We worked that in, in that summer and planted the winter wheat in the fall. And uh, next to it, we had 20 acres of our normal chemical um, regime. And so I I did soil tests on the alfalfa plow down to see where the nitrogen was, because that's our main thing we look look at. It was quite high. And I added nitrogen to my um, other field to bring them both up to the same level. So we say that nitrogens are are comparable, um, at least how we could measure them. And um, when we harvested the crop, well, first of all, the other thing I did, I, I, I closed the um spacing between the rows in half from 14 inches that we normally use for winter wheat which made a big high ridge uh, between each row to catch snow and and uh help um the wheat from winter killing so it had a little insulation i went i used my spring wheat drills which was only 7 inch spacing and planted winter wheat with it and all the neighbors said well that's you're going to fail right there the winter wheat's all going to die and um because it doesn't have enough protection um, but my organic friends told me said the, your best weed control is a um, a good canopy of your of your crop of your cash crop, and the competition of that will take out your weeds, and so the the narrow spacing was very important for that to work, and uh, so that's why I did that, and in the spring, of course, the first thing I did got out there just as early as I could. To, like a day like this, and the snow's still on the ground, but you can see that the grain is still alive and green underneath the, just at the soil surface, and it was. So I passed the first test, it, it, it came up beautifully. And at harvest time, the yields were almost identical that year, it, was, it wasn't a great, it was a, it was an average yield. Or the organic field was about, oh thirty-five 35 bushel an acre, the, the chemical one was like 36 or 37. It wasn't significantly different, it was in the same, almost the same. The protein was also just about the same. The chemical field was like 15.3 and the organic field is like 15.5 or so, just a little above, but it wasn't statistically different. The takeaway message, Dave, was that both fields produce um, similar quantity and similarly quality, but one used no um, uh, purchased additives of, of chemical fertilizer. It, had, it was a result of growing it in the, in the alfalfa for several years in this case. My dad was astonished. Here he had been spending every year tens of thousands of dollars for these chemicals to increase his yields, and increase his protein. And this young, you know, whippersnapper of a kid of his had come back from California <laughs> going to school and matched that with no inputs. And, um, and I said, Wow, look at this, dad. I said, Let's let's plant half the farm organic next year. He said, oh no! Whoa, whoa, wait a minute! Wait a bit. He said, um, "How about how about 15%?" I said, "How about 25?" How about 20? I said, "Okay, 20." So anyway, we converted 20 to 20% of the farm. Then the next year, we started into an organic rotation, which um, uh, the transition is a little bit tough because you have to build up the soil first. We didn't do that in the beginning. We just quit using chemicals, and then we started building up the soil with with legumes and um, alfalfa, sweet clover, as we went. But the second year, so this is 1988 now, um, the first crop was planted in 86, harvested in 87, now it's 88 after we saw the results from 87. And uh, we had a drought year. And in a drought year in Montana, um, it's not a question of how much money you're gonna make that year, it's how much you're gonna lose. And so if you can reduce your input costs then your losses are gonna be reduced. Now that could be a big factor. Um, and it was a severe drought. And a severe drought in Montana also normally is accompanied by grasshoppers. And we had a terrible grasshopper plague that year. And of course, with the, with the um, chemical <coughs> agriculture, well, I know what to do. I just call up my, my spray pilot buddy and you know, in town and say, hey, Tom, we got grasshoppers. Okay, so I'll be there in the morning. <laughs> Here comes a plane and he sprays with malathion. And in a few minutes, everything's dead. And then he said, "Say to me now, Bobby he says now. Remember, he said, don't go in that field for 24 hours. You know, after all, you know, malathion—it's a poison. You know, yeah, I know, I know, I know. So anyway, it was—we knew it was a poison—and it killed everything, the good things along with the bad things. We didn't have much appreciation for the good stuff it killed, mm. but um, I didn't know had didn't have any idea what to do with my organic fields. And I called up my organic friends and I said, I said." Bill, Bill, what are we gonna do? Like the grasshoppers are coming, gonna eat everything. And they said, "Oh, now just calm down, calm down." And they said, "You can get this um, protozoa. It's a small, a little smaller than the bacteria. It's called Nosema locusta. You put it on some wheat bran. You spread it around the edges of your field. And the grasshoppers come in. They eat that, and um, they get sick. And then all their friends come after theirs, and they eat them. They eat their sick buddies. It's kind of like American politics today, you see. <laughs> and that's what happened. And by the harvest time there was almost no grasshoppers left, even though they ate probably 20 or 30 feet, almost bare, into the edge of the field, the middle of the field was completely without grasshoppers. And even though it wasn't a great crop, because it was a drought year after all, we still had some harvest there. Meanwhile, across the, the creek bottom <clears throat> in the, um, the chemical field, in about 10 days, the malathion was gone, and the next wave of grasshoppers came in. They started coming in. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't afford to spray it twice, and we didn't. And at harvest time, there's very little grain there, we had more grasshoppers probably in the grain tank than we had grain. And so two years in a row now, we've had a great success with our organic system compared to our chemical system. It's supposed to be the scientific um, you know, epitome of what was wonderful um, in American agriculture. And I said, dad, look at this. <laughs> um, it's just it's black and white. I said, I, I'm not gonna use any more chemicals at all on our farm again. And, and he didn't say a word, he, he he just nodded and he was agreeable. And that's how we started. So it was kind of a crash course. I wouldn't recommend that, but I was so enthused to try to learn how to make our farm uh, successful organic system. Uh, and you can't learn, Dave, you can't learn to walk if you're always gonna have a crutch. And so I just went cold turkey on the whole thing. Um, we were in a position I didn't, I was convinced it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, sink us and Within a couple years, I mean, it was a little bit rough. We didn't know what we we're doing, as I mentioned earlier. But within two or three years, um, maybe four, <clears throat> we had paid off our operating note. And that's unheard of in our areas. That means that the, the money you borrow in the spring to run your farm until you harvest. We didn't have it anymore. We were able to um, reduce our operating costs by not having, by growing our own inputs, increase the value of what we sold. And, and the difference of those two um, we took to the bank and we didn't need an operating note and that spoke to us for itself. So I was, I was an instant
2: convert, you could say. Yes. So there's some important things there to just touch on. One is the big question, which is why didn't all your neighbors become organic? <laughs> well, do you have coffee shops here in Vermont? Yeah. yeah. Right.
0: You know what happens there? That's where all the farmers go and they brag about their yields. It's kind of like when they go fishing, you know, how big a fish is yeah. and they, one thing that we don't have big bragging rights on in organic is our yields, yeah. but that is so ingrained in in the farmers' mentality, it's it's uh, it's it's linked with success. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. They never talk, and the chemical companies are pushing this. Um, they never talk at their big meetings or anything on net return. They only talk about yields. Yeah. And how many bushels per acre you're going to get? Yeah. Well, and the other problem that, and in the beginning, of course, we didn't know what we're doing. It takes a little while to get things in balance. We had a lot of weeds showing up that that we didn't have before when we were spraying everything. Yeah. So we had what um, uh, people were calling me the weed farmer, you know, behind my back. Yeah. And um, and uh, they were taking bets in town. Uh, to see which was going to happen first. Am I going to go out of business first or give it up and go back to reality and and, and, and go back to um, what would make sense, you know, like the rest of us. Yeah. And so they didn't see, they didn't see, um, uh, they didn't, they didn't see the whole picture the way I saw it. Right. And then, of course, when we started to have some success and get our weeds under control with the rotations and whatnot, then they were convinced I was spraying at night. I mean, it was just unbelievable to them that you could do, that you could succeed without all these things that everybody said was necessary now
2: yes,
0: after just a few decades. Yeah. It felt like it was necessary, even though for thousands of years, that's why you know, I, um, people talk about conventional agriculture and that was kind of the hot button for me because <clears throat> to me, conventional agriculture is what we've been doing for 10,000 years. Yeah, And what we've been doing the last 50 or 60 years is a gigantic um, industrial chemical experiment. And the wheels are starting to come off that bus in so many different ways. And, and, and the farmers are mostly paying the price for that. Um, so I don't like to call that stuff conventional. I call that you know chemical or, or, yeah. or the great experiment or whatever. Yeah. And if we mimic, and what I've learned as an organic um, uh, farmer and then um, promoter is the closer we can mimic nature, the, the more success we can have um, and you look out at nature, you don't see any monoculture. Um, you see great diversity. Um, you see that the soil, you don't see the soil, but it is really what's making everything work. But the plants that grow through it and on it and, and, and the organisms that live in it, all take and give different aspects that make the whole thing sustainable and renewable. Yeah. Um, and that's how it works. Yeah. And the closer we can mimic that, I think, as farmers, the more successful we're going to be in the long term.
2: One of the things that uh, I have encountered a lot in the last seven years or so is I've gotten into more public conversations about this. These used to be very private conversations yeah. for me, yes, right? Yeah, <laughs> I just did what I did, and and people bought our tomatoes because they were delicious. It, yes, that, yeah. it was just it worked. But one of the things I found is that. Uh, there is this thing I think what Stuart Hill would call shallow organic, which means no conventional pesticides. Mm-hmm. And then there's deep organic, which means, and this is everything that organic ever meant as a movement, mm-hmm. which is that the food isn't just not bad for you; it's actually good for yeah, you. Right. you. Yeah, right. You know that it doesn't just not have poison on it; it actually has a much deeper level of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think that those. Same effects are, are mirrored at every level in terms of impact on the community, impact on the water, impact on the air. That they, These are actually yeah. positive impacts, yeah. impact yeah. on the climate. Yeah. So, do you believe that the wheat that you grow on your farm now, uh, that the organic wheat grown under that system is nutritionally superior?
0: Well, well I do. And... But let me qualify that a little bit. I didn't really, as I mentioned just earlier a little bit, I didn't really get into the nutritional aspect of this immediately. Um, <clears throat> with wheat, there was no research about that for one thing. Um, and, uh, we, we ran into a period in the 90s where wheat started to become, you know, the, um, the bad boy in the block and everybody was going wheat-free and gluten-free because of yeah. nearly 20% of the people in this country could no longer eat what we call modern wheat without difficulty. And um, the, we, we had, um, actually, we had a, an ancient grain that I had first seen when I was a kid uh, at the uh, county fair. <clears throat> and my father was quite enamored with this because a friend of his had actually brought this back from uh, Portugal and sent it to a friend of his in our county and it grown it, it and supposed to come out of a tomb in Egypt. Um, well, it grew, and so that should have been the first clue. It wasn't 4,000 years old coming out of tombs, right? Because <laughs> seeds don't really last that long. It doesn't matter if they're in a tomb or not.
2: Um, they last a long time, but not 4,000 years. No, not 4,000 years. <laughs> years, not 4,000.
0: And so anyway, um, it was a novelty. It was a giant wheat. I, I, I always take some of my hat now. It was a giant wheat that the kernels were about two or three times bigger than the normal wheat. Um, we took it to, to this food, food show. And um, uh, out of all these hundreds of people that came by, my dad had a little jar, he was showing it to everybody. And uh, one person said, this is just what I'm looking for. And because of that one person, we went home, we had 50, 50 pounds or so in, the, in storage by then. Cause we had a, another guy was interested many years before, but then they lost interest before we had enough to give it to them or give uh, for their product. So because that one person, we planted all 50 pounds and a half acre and then, um, to make a really long story, really short, uh, within about 30 years, we were up to 100,000 acres of this stuff. it's scattered around 250 organic farms in Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Most of it being sold into Italy, 75%, where they make over 3,000 different products. It's just amazing how it's taken off. But in the very beginning, we thought of it as a novelty, something that would be unusual. And if somebody wanted something where it could be a, you know, another crop in our in our rotation. Um, <clears throat> well, I had a friend in California, he said, well, I've got an idea for this. And he took it to a pasta manufacturer and they made pasta and made a wonderful whole wheat pasta that was very, had a very nice smooth texture. Whole wheat pasta in those days was just a ground up modern durum and, and it was very gritty and scratched the back mm-hmm. of your throat. This didn't do that. It was very soft, had a soft brand we found out later. And it was a nice texture. Well, my dad gave a package of this to a lady uh, who lived in a nearby town, who had such terrible food allergies that she couldn't uh, eat wheat or or, or many other things. And they were completely debilitated her. And and, um, and I said to her, I said to my dad, so this is about 89 now or so. And I said, well, dad, um, why did you give her that? The pasta, you know she can't eat wheat, it's going to make her sick. He said, well, he says it's organic, isn't it? (laughs) So here my dad is now, he's more converted than I am, you see. (laughs) So anyway, this lady called back the next day and she said, what is this stuff? She said, when I ate it, and she did a little kinesiology muscle testing to make sure it wouldn't make her terrible ill, and she thought she could try it, so she ate it. She said, but when I ate it, it made me feel better. I said, wow, never heard of that before. Well, we'll give you some more. And and then she said, and a few a uh, few days later, she said, you know, I have a sister, and she has all kinds of food allergies, and she can't eat wheat either. Could we send her some? And I said, sure, we'll send her a whole box. We sent her a whole carton full of these little sample bags. She called us back in two or three weeks, and she said, after she had eaten this, oh, maybe nearly a month, she said, not only could she eat it, and it made her feel better, but she became less sensitive to other foods mm-hmm. that she was having trouble with. And when I heard that, I said, "Oh, wow! This is um, this isn't just a novelty. This is like you know a gift from the Lord or something yeah. to help people feel better to, to heal."
2: This is medicine.
0: And this is medicine. And um, then my scientific um, you know juices started running again. I said, "We need to understand what's going on with this." I couldn't find anybody in America, hardly in the in the early '90s, that believed uh, first of all that took seriously the food or the wheat allergy or sensitivity idea most of them said well it's, it's in their head, you know that they just believe it's not good for them and so it's a fad and, but in Italy I found a group in University of Bologna and University of Florence that really did want to look at it because in Italy if you can't eat your pasta I mean it's, you just don't run down the street and buy wheat free gluten free first of all it doesn't exist but you want to eat your pasta and you want to know why you can't and so they were very interested in this yeah. and they started doing research and it uh, cost us a lot of money, um, but it, we ended up with 35 peer reviewed journal articles that um, were published in high high class, um, high rep- highly reputable um, journals, um, mostly in Europe and US journals, that clearly identified the differences between modern wheat and ancient wheat and how it affected the body. And in the last, um, dozen or so papers have dealt with chronic disease. And so we did human clinical trials. We don't know how this works. We don't know the mode of action, but we know when people eat modern wheat or eat ancient wheat in a double blind crossover study. So one group would eat one, then another group and the other group ate the other, then they cross over after having a washout period uh, for six or eight weeks. So that nobody knew what they were eating. And so, they were both told it was gonna be good for them because they didn't want them to think negatively. <laughs> um, but we started studying heart disease, diabetes, irritable bowel syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, um, fibromyalgia. Um, those are the main ones that we, that we published on. These are all um, uh, major diseases that affect mankind throughout the whole world. And we found there was a tremendous difference in how we had an effect on these diseases. What we found that modern wheat in most every case was inflammatory at some level. And this ancient wheat was anti-inflammatory. And the difference was like 35 to 45%, it was huge. Medicine pills couldn't mimic that. Yeah. And the researchers were just astounded. They'd never seen anything like this before. And it really started to bring into my whole understanding of of the teaching of Hippocrates 2,300 years ago that food should be your medicine and medicine should be your food and it was right in front of me, the very epitome of that. And and uh, to think that wheat is a food which was a staple for ancient civilizations of, of particularly the Western world, the, the Romans, the Greeks, the, the Egyptians, the, Ethiopian, the uh, uh, Ephesians, all these great civilizations that existed in, in even parts of China yeah, yeah. Um, in India. Um, and yet today it's... Um, forbidden for 20% of the people to eat it. So what's happened? Um, And a lot of people say, well, don't eat wheat at all. That's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We need to understand what we've done with modern wheat, with the breeding program, with a sole focus on yields, that we have so diminished nutrition and brought other problems into effect, that now 20% of the people have trouble eating it. So it does make a difference of how we, what seed we put in the ground so the soil is very, very important, it's the, it's the heart. But what we put into the, through that heart, the blood that goes through that heart really makes a difference if it's good blood or bad blood. And the bad blood, in many cases, is a result of a loss of nutrition by focusing on too much, on just one um, external or industrial component and that is either manufacturing components to make it easier or more profitable to manufacture, or higher yields. And that's what we've done with wheat.
2: This reminds me of, <clears throat> I have a friend in Germany, who's, she works for Natural Land, and, oh, yeah. uh, great, great group. And she said, you know, we're not just about organic products. We want to create an organic landscape mm-hmm. where all the parts are working together. And you see that if you think you can just take the same seeds and put them in organic soil and grow, it is better. Yes, it is better. But if you can find a seed that actually uh, works better in that system, and and there's been this long evolution through history to get there, Mm -hmm. then we can have food that is genuinely more healthful, although the yields will not be as high. And that's where the economics has to shift if this is going to succeed. So I'm interested when you, when you, chose to take your farm fairly rapidly to organic. Part of why you were able to do that is you were convinced that there was a market that would pay you a price mm-hmm. high enough to justify the reduction in yield.
0: Yes. And at that time it was. Um, the the uh, price for um, chemically raised grain was quite low. And um, in the very beginning, we were getting a dollar premium over three dollar bushel, so that meant that we were increasing the value um, by a third. That's huge. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but when we started with our Camus project, the ancient grain project, um, we just arbitrarily set that price at three times the um, the chemical price of grain because yeah. the yield of that was even lower. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because now we had a I had a grain that had never been bred for high yields, so you had the organic aspect. Actually, it fit, it fit the organic system quite well, because it wasn't being pushed for high yields. It was being pushed for the things it adapted to, like you said. And the organic system was very akin to the thousands of years of adaptation. I think so. That went um, quite well, and people, you touch on this. The thing that I think a little bit, Dave, the thing that we need to talk about when we're talking about price, um, we can't talk about food independent of health because food and health go together like a hand in and glove. And um, if you look at the amount that we spend in this country for food plus health for the last 60 years hasn't really changed much. But what has changed is the ratio of what you're spending for food and health. It used to be we spent um, seven and eight, nine percent for um, health and about 18, 19% for food. Now that's just reversed. So the, the, the health is sky high because so many people are sick for one thing, of course, in health things cost more. But now so many, 60% of this country has at least one chronic disease. Um, 40% have two or more. You know, um, No country can sustain that and it's getting worse and worse year by year. And it doesn't matter what kind of healthcare program you have, there's a lot of debate about that nowadays. It doesn't matter what kind of healthcare you have if a significant percent of the people are ill. You're gonna break the country, you're gonna break the system, eventually it will come down because no society can can pay for that much sickness. So you can't, so people are always saying to me, oh, organic is so expensive. Organic is not expensive at all when you combine it with health. And if you eat more organic and have better health, the healthcare costs come down, so you can afford to pay the farmers a decent price for the organic um, food that they grow, and and everybody wins. Yeah. And that's another one of my business philosophies: is that everybody everybody should win. In order for a business to be sustainable, everybody has to win. Yeah. Uh, you can't make your profit on the backs of somebody else doing your free work for you. Um, and you cannot talk about organic food in the absence of health they have to go together to make sense for what's going on. I, I always tell people that there's a very high cost of cheap food in this country. And it's, you don't pay it at the checkout counter. The first of all, the farmers start to pay it by getting uh, the low cost of production uh, for their what they grow. And, and many of them in our area, half of my neighbors are gone They've gone bankrupt or just sold out because they couldn't make it anymore. Half of them in, in my generation, um, Then there's a high cost to the communities. When those farmers go, the communities suffer. My little town of Big Sandy was a thousand people when I was in high school um, 50 years ago. Now it's 600 and the main street is decimated. Um, There's a high cost to our environment. You know, glyphosate now is in our rain that falls on our farm and falls on everybody's farm. It's so prevalent, it's in the rain that is everywhere. Um, We are contaminating the earth upon which we live Uh, We have a a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that's the size of New Jersey. Uh, Children are forbidden to drink well water from Iowa because of the nitrates in it that are so high. How bad does it have to get before we think that maybe we're going in the wrong direction with this? Um, So anyway, but but the last one I think is even the most hideous one, it's the one I've already mentioned, and that's um, the high cost to our health and the number of people now that are sick. those are the high costs of this cheap food system that we have, this industrial chemical system that's producing very cheap food and plentiful because of high yields that we talked about. But yet it's devastating to our people and to the, and whoever eats it, not only our people, but wherever we go.
2: Yeah, so that's, that's a more sophisticated conversation that needs to happen. Yes. If, if we take a very simplistic view and say, well, we're making food that people can afford. You could just as well say, you're making food that makes people sick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's let's talk about the whole system. The whole picture, the whole you picture. You gotta look at the whole picture. Yeah. And and uh, a lot of the, there, there are strong economic incentives not to. Yeah, of course. Because the people who are making money
0: now with the system that's in place, they're making billions and billions, Dave. And and look at the influence they have in Washington. It doesn't even matter what party's in power, they're there. And they're influencing whoever is the, in a the position of the decision-making um, to the point of, um, it actually goes their way most cases. Yeah. And and that's just as in control. They do not wanna lose that control. They're, they're happy with everything the way it is now. We've got the drug companies, big pharma on one side, making billions of dollars, pushing billions of pills because people are sick. We have the food, chemical food uh, industrial complex on the other side, uh, pushing billions of dollars worth of chemicals. um, So farmers can get more yields, which are contaminated and also um, not as nutritious and getting people sick. So they're playing into big farmers' hands. Now we have like companies like Monsanto, they've been sold to bear. So we have some companies that own both ends of this money-making deal. (laughs) And they're not even American anymore, for heaven's sakes. So we're shipping out all of our, our, our resources as well as uh, losing our good health. Yeah. This doesn't make sense at all unless you have s- the ability to buy such marketing and such influence that it, it's, it's, it's made into a facade that looks gorgeous to everybody. And the facade is cheap, plentiful food for everybody. No one has to worry about going hungry. And that was uh, you know, after World War II when we saw what happened in Europe um, and the devastation of, of famines. Um, I think that the government decided and the, it was a very noble idea that we should never go hungry in this country. We should never have that. And so the cheap, plentiful food was the main uh, focus. Um, no one, I think in the beginning, no one anticipated the the fallout from that mentality or the takeover by such a select and small group of powerful um, international cartels.
2: Yeah. You know, Eisenhower's famous speech about the military industrial complex. And of course we've got the uh, industrial agriculture yeah. complex now yeah. and and uh, it's, it, I think I heard, well, it was at our rally, Shelley Pingree spoke and um, she said, you know, more money is spent in Washington DC lobbying food mm-hmm. than is spent lobbying defense. Wow. And she said, think about that, you know, and all they're doing is try to control the opinions of the politicians in Congress. Yeah. And, and they're quite successful. Of course they are. And they, and they paint the picture that they want painted.
1: Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 74. Please join us next time when we bring you the second part of today's interview with organic grain farmer, Bob Quinn. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask our favorite authors your questions. See you next time.